How's it going today, Destiny family? Good to see you this morning, this afternoon now, huh? Ready to rock and roll, and I don't know about you, but uh, I believe God wants to have a conversation every time we gather as the church. Would you agree? So let's really press into that today. Come on, let's just give a hand clap of praise that we just declare we're going to receive something from the Lord. Take a moment and pass down the books, if you would. I have a um, fairly elaborate, elaborate and complicated assignment to you today. You know, we're in this, this journey together discovering where Jesus is in every book of the Bible. There are 66 books of Scripture. And Jesus said in John 5, verse 39, the Scriptures speak of me. So literally, he's revealed uniquely in every single book, and today we're going to press in to Daniel and discover how to effectively influence our world. That's the focus we find in the overall perspective of what Daniel brings. Now, if you go to our website, destinychristian.com, you can hit the blog there, because the book of Daniel is really unique. It's 12 chapters. The first ch six chapters tell six stories that most of us have heard growing up in church. Um, and then the final six chapters talk about four very complicated visions, like apocalyptic in nature. And so I lay those out uh, more specifically on the blog, and I'm going to give you kind of a glance at it today as we talk through this. And I want to do this very much on purpose with what I believe God's asked of me as your pastor and is asking of us as a congregation and we're going to start by just an understanding. Jesus is clearly revealed in Daniel as the fourth man in the fire. And so you know the story. You've got the fire burning, and the three Hebrew children have been thrown in. And there, Jesus, or the fourth man in the fire, it is Jesus there with those three. And you find that story in Daniel 3, 25. And Jesus is revealed, and think about this, in the book of Daniel as the fourth man in the fire. Now, I don't know why. Sometimes God delivers us in the fire. How many of you prefer he delivers us from the fire? Right? I, I don't understand why we're not always delivered from the fire. Sometimes we're delivered in the fire. But don't abandon what you do know, God's faithfulness and goodness, because of what you don't understand, whatever's going on in life. Don't abandon what you do know. How many know God is faithful? He's a faithful God. Don't abandon what you do know because of something you don't understand. And we have to be very guarded against that. A lot was taking place in this particular context of uh, Daniel's life and Israel. And Babylon had invaded disobedient Israel. In a sense, they were in the fire uh, because of their own sin and disobedience. And aren't you glad? How many of you ever made mistakes and Jesus still came to your rescue? Aren't you glad? I just, let's, let's take a moment now. Normally, you know me, I'm going to preach you up. But today, I'm going to try to keep that. I just feel like there's some, some things that we need to talk about on a little different plane. So I didn't do too great of a job first uh, service, but I'm going to do a little better this time. Because I don't want to just say things at you that kind of make you go, whoa, that's good. And then, and then we just kind of move on. I want you to digest some of this today. We're going to talk through some elaborate stuff, and I want you to be able to digest a little bit of what I'm talking about very specifically. So once again, Israel had made some bad decisions. How many of you have ever made bad decisions before? Raise your hand. How many of you, your neighbor next to you has made bad decisions before? Go ahead and confess their sin. Some people make bad decisions so much they don't even need a devil to wreck their lives. They wreck their own lives. 
And when you get in that place and it's like, I'm in the fire because of my own bad decision, Jesus is revealed in the book of Daniel as a gracious Savior that comes even in the midst of the fire of your circumstance, no matter what that is. Now, to whom much is given, much is required. Your sin was a mountain of sin, and that mountain of sin, aren't you glad, was met with a mountain of grace. Thank God for a mountain of grace that met a mountain of sin. And with that mountain of grace that met my mountain of sin came with it a mountain of responsibility. And God then has asked me to share that grace and that mercy into the lives of others around me and not be harsh with people that might not agree in the same way I do. Can you, can you agree with me on that today? Very important that we learn to represent and reflect the desires of the Lord. In fact, that's one of the things. There are two specific things as I began to talk about this because I am going to talk about the political climate of our nation today. And uh, I felt like there were two things the Lord was asking me. Number one, uh, just as I woke up this morning, the first thing I sensed the Lord was saying as I began to pray was, I want you to reflect my desires more than your opinions. God wants us to reflect his desires more than our opinions. Yeah, quick question. How many of you have had opinions that have changed, right? Over time, opinions change. And if we can learn to reflect God's desires more than our own opinions, then I think we'll destroy a lot fewer people in the wake of the way we're living our lives. So that's an important element. I really, I'm going to try to even uh, not give you all of my opinions today because I think that's a big problem in the church anyway. I think we got a lot of pastors trying to tie theology and all their political viewpoints and opinions. And, and I think there's a lot going on politically and we need to take a responsible approach to truth in the midst of it all, no question. And we'll talk about issues today. But the bottom line, we need to really understand what God's desires in it. So that's number one. Number two, and God really confirmed this in the first service. Um, in fact, the Lord spoke to me this morning that angry religious reactions are like a sledgehammer. And God wants us to use more, a strategic instrument of a scalpel. And as I was in prayer this morning, Pastor Nathan had no idea any of this. And he came, or we were in worship for a service, and he came over and put his arm around me and he prayed. And he said, Lord, I know that you just want to use Pastor Lawrence as a scalpel, as a strategic instrument today. And I just thought, what great confirmation. So how many of you have let the Lord do a little bit of surgery? How many of you know I'm going to say some things you might not agree with? You still love me though, right? We're all looking to Jesus for all the answers. And, and that's the wonderful thing. You may not agree with everything I say today. But we can have, dis we can have this distinction in our lives without having to have division in the church. And let me just tell you, a divided nation really needs a unified church right now. So would you just help me and just put your hand on your heart. Lord, we need you. We don't have all the answers. We feel like we have all the answers. We sometimes so confidently know what everybody needs to believe and who they need to vote for and what policies need to be in place. But Lord, deliver us from our arrogance. Deliver us from our pride. Help us to understand the problem in the world is not the abundance of darkness. It's the absence of the light. And if my people, who are called by my name, will first and foremost humble themselves from arrogant positions, turn from their wicked ways and pray, you'll hear from heaven, you'll heal our land. So help us to see that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're in the 6th century. Babylon invaded disobedient Israel. Uh, things were bad. Daniel was taken to the cultural center of their empire, the city of Babylon, like a lot going on. He had to learn their language. He had to learn their culture. 
all those things going on in his life. Daniel lived in a culture. Please hear this. Daniel lived in a culture that was absolutely hostile against his faith. You and I live in a culture that is growing increasingly more hostile against our faith. I believe we can learn a lot from Daniel in the way he responded and his influence. It was really kind of wild. He lived through 72 years of Jewish captivity. And and I want you to think in this kingdom, he was one of the top three leaders in the overall kingdom. So here's this person taken in captivity, learned the language, learned the culture, served the people within his reach in such a way, spirit of excellence was upon him, that he got invited in to be a part of a major influential uh, leadership of this nation. He was one of only three administrators over the governors throughout this government. And so just really wild, he was one of the three major leaders in a government that was hostile against his faith. And somehow, somehow he effectively entered into that culture in a way that brought about God's desires and expanded God's kingdom. How many of you would like to do that in your own life? I mean, that has got to be the goal here of what God's asking us to do. So the religious, for sake of reference, the religious uh, culture of Daniel's day was very polytheistic, meaning there were like many gods, many ways to God. And in Daniel's day, it was ridiculous for Daniel to think there's only one true God or there's only one way to God. And in our day, Many, you understand this very resembling ideology? What do you mean Jesus is the only way to God? And in the same battle, in the same ideologies that are so resembling, that's why I felt like this was the significant book for us to talk about some of these uh, political issues as we sort this out and we walk this uh, out together. So, you know, he had a lot of opportunities. Daniel had a lot of opportunities to abandon his values but he stood firm in his faith, and he did so in such a way that he had tremendous influence. So today, I just want to say our our big focus, big idea, big emphasis is we probably need to get bracelets. WWDD, what would Daniel do? Okay, that's what we want to try and figure out here. What would Daniel do? Here's what Daniel did. He kept his faith healthy and strong. He learned the language. How many of you know a lot of Christians don't even know the language we live in America? Like we use Christianese. So they learn the language. Did he learn the language? He had to learn a whole different language. We just need to learn cultural language. He understood the culture. He served, very important, he served people within his reach. Just reach over and touch somebody that you're next to. Give them a little love. He served people within his reach. Serve people within your reach. I'm talking to you about political ideas today. Serve people within your reach. Can I just give you a little marriage advice? Like marriages improve when you stop being angry about the things you can't control in the other person's life and you simply take control of what you can control in your own life. How many of you know marriages will improve if you'll stop being angry about what you can't control and you'll simply take control of what you can? I don't know if you understand, but in the political world that we live today, you need to take control of what you can and just stop being angry about the stuff you have no control over. Because all you're doing is getting stirred up. We've got this politically charged atmosphere. Everybody's angry. And, and I, I'm just, you know, again, this morning I'm, I'm having my devotions, not anything to do with preaching. And I'm reading about Jesus talking to the conservative, angry, religious people of his day called the Pharisees. And he was pretty intense with them. He was like, you're more about principle than you are about people. And because of that, your father is Satan. And any converts you have are like worse than you. They're descendants and spawn of Satan. I, I mean, that's pretty intense. So when you look at all the, 
all the counsel of Scripture, we've got to really evaluate what it is we're trying to accomplish and how we do this. First and foremost, I want you to see straight out of the book of Daniel, because we're going to, I'm going to mention some of the common political issues of our day, and I want you to know biblically the Bible speaks to these things, and we need to be firm on those things, but we need to be firm in an attitude of love. Everybody say firm. Attitude of love. Those are supposed to go together for us. The, the Bible actually says the church will be known by its firm theological position. No, by our love one for another. So very important that we get this, okay? So uh, let's understand how powerful all this is. First, Daniel eleven thirty two 32 is a great verse. I love this verse. It says, the people who know their God, they will be strong and carry out great exploits. The people who know their God. Does anybody in this room know their God? Uh, I'm talking about like you know your God. This, you might want to, I don't know if it's on your card or not, but I write it in my Bible margin out to the side of this particular verse, Genesis 4.1, because it's the same Hebrew word that you find in Genesis 4, and Adam knew Eve and she conceived. The people who know their God in intimate terms, like Adam knew Eve and she conceived. There's something very intimate about knowing God. This is not about knowing religious talk. This is not about knowing knowing religious rhetoric. This is not about learning ideas that I parrot and repeat back to people around me. This is having an intimate knowledge of God, my Savior, my King, my Lord. He's transformed my life. I can't help but talk about the power of God at work within me. Come on. That's what God has called us to as Christians. So we have six stories in the first six chapters, four visions in the final six the visions are elaborately complicated. I want to give you a quick look at one of them. It's found in Daniel 9, 24. It says, the Lord has commanded 490 years. This is an incredible vision, an incredible prophecy about the, the, uh, the appearance of the Messiah. And it says, it will be 40, 49 plus 434 years from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem. It's talking about a command being given to rebuild Jerusalem. Until the anointed one comes. Who is the anointed one? Say his name. Jesus. The anointed one is Jesus. Now, if you add that 49 plus 434, what you get is 483 years. So this, this vision, this word breaks into two incredible prophecies. And it's talking about a total of 490 years. So stay with me on this. I think it'll really help you. Uh, because it's, they're, they're, the first segment is 483. And then I'll tell you about the seven because it involves us. The 483 like happened. It's the first appearance of Christ. The, the seven years, that's about the second coming of Christ. And it's going to be really interesting uh, to see that. But I've asked for two people to help. If I could get Caden and Jordan to come on up. And I'm going to get a little bit of assistance here because what the Bible prophesied is that huh, there will be a command given to rebuild the temple. So if we could only figure out when that command was given, then we could look in history and mark off that number of days which just, according to the Jewish calendar and the sacred year, you can read this stuff explaining it all but on the blog, but it's 173,880 days after the command is given. 
Okay, that's how many days, and then like Jesus appears. That's what the Bible says is going to happen before any of this happened. So we do know the time that the command was given. It's in the Bible, in the book of Ezra, and we can look at that historically. It is March 4th, I'm sorry, March 14th, 445 B.C. Now, Jordan, she is going to be planted here in 445 B.C., and Caden, he's going to help me. Caden's my neighbor, actually, and uh, he's going to help me, and we are going to walk 170, can you count pretty well? We're going to walk 173,800 steps. Are you ready? Okay, let's start counting. One, come with me. Two, this is timeline. Three, four, 150,000, 173,880. Ladies and gentlemen, prophetic Caden has arrived. 173,880 years after March 14th, 445 BC. Can I hear it for Caden? What's the date? What's the date where you are, Caden? April 6th, 32 AD. Okay, so you guys go ahead and come over here, right here, just so we can see you together. And this is, this is the deal. Here's the deal. The Bible says there was going to be a command given. The command was to rebuild Jerusalem. The command would be given. We, we figured out when the command was given. It said 173,880 days after the command was given, Jesus was going to be revealed. Listen, this is an important date. Did you know that the crux of time, single most provable incident in the history of the world is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? He was 33 years old when he was crucified. Are you seeing a picture here? I mean, look at this. This, this date is Palm Sunday. This date is the day Jesus rode on a donkey into Israel and people, into Jerusalem, and people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the Lord comes. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Our king has arrived. I don't know if you understand or not, but there was a prophecy given in the Bible that said those days would pass. There would be a prophetic alarm clock. The king would say, rebuild, and when the king said rebuild, the prophetic alarm clock started ticking. And 173,880 days later, it began to ring. And Jesus was revealed. Do you see how fascinating that is? Thank you guys very much. You'll put those down there. Appreciate your help. How many think like God totally rocks to be able to predict the future that accurately? All right. Okay, this is one of 330 prophecies about the first coming of the Messiah. I mean, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at this stuff throughout eternity, and God showing us uh, very, I believe it's going to be incredible to see, wow, that was there, I missed that, I read that so many times. I just want to say to you, you can trust the Bible. I want you to hear me today, you can trust the Bible. This is not just a book of good morals that you can pick which ones you like. You can trust the Bible, but you got to take the whole counsel of God's Word. And that was 483 years of the 490. Let me just give you a quick understanding of what the final seven years, because they've not yet come to pass. The Messiah was revealed in the first one. In the second one, there's a seven-year uh, span of time. What happened? Jesus showed up, and the prophetic alarm clock paused. And we're waiting for the seven-year clock to begin. And what the Bible describes is that there's actually going to be a treaty 
that's going to be written up between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And it's going to be a seven-year peace treaty. Has anyone heard anybody talking about this? Because, like, they've been talking about it for over a decade now. I think we're living in a pretty significant time, just personally between you and me. Like, I think when the Bible prophesies that all that's going on and two witnesses will fall dead in the street and then all the nations of the world will look upon those two witnesses, I think, like, that's possible because all the news in the world is all focused in on this little bitty plot of land that's just like the size of the panhandle of the state of Oklahoma. Why all the attention over there? Because the prophecies are coming to pass. And that seven years is going to be a treaty signed between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And what the Bible predicts will happen, when that starts, the seven-year alarm clock begins. And in the middle of that, at three and a half years, the Palestinians are going to renege on their contract. There'll be disagreement. The Bible describes it as the abomination of desolation. Is going to take place, and whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, or post, that's where this comes in. If you know what I'm talking about, uh, then you know you can put the pieces together. Here's the thing that I just want to make sure we understand: the Bible rocks. Like God is amazing. How many of you would would agree? And I want to ask everybody in the room to please vote because if you don't think this, then we need to have a conversation. I really need you to teach me. It, how many of you in the room say God is smarter than I am? Just let me just see. God, okay, very good. I'm glad most of us believe that, we, that God is smarter than we are. And it makes me think about when my girls were really young. Uh, Lexi was just able to talk. Faith could talk. And, uh, and we're driving down the road. And I said something like, oh, look, there's a PT cruiser. And Faith says, Dad, uh, that's actually a DT cruiser. Now, I was a lot older than her and uh, arguably a lot smarter because she was so much younger. And I said, sweetheart, uh, you know, I'm a certain age here and you're a certain age there and I've lived life a lot longer. And I'm pretty sure that that car is called a PT Cruiser. To which she responded, nope, it's a DT. Uh, Okay. How many of you would agree that I was a little smarter than like a four-year-old? Okay, I'm not getting a lot of love in this room right now. <laughs> Let's just say I was right, okay? It's, it's kind of like that. Our arguing with God is like a small child arguing with somebody who like knows a whole lot more and like put that to the mega scale. You know what? God's word is true. You can trust his word. His word, Genesis to Revelation, is the divinely inspired God of word. It gives us the rule book for life. I'm sorry I'm on a rabbit trail, but I just feel I need to share this with you. I I, I know this probably will make some of you in the room weep. This is such a powerful verse. Some of you in the room might have said, this is my favorite verse ever. But if you look in the book of Leviticus, it says, do not cook a baby goat in its mother's milk. God bless you. Like, are you serious? Don't cook a baby goat. And it's much, how many of you will obey that command? Can I just see? Thank you very much. I see those hands. God bless you. You know, if you cook a baby goat in a mother milk, what's the big deal? The Bible says not to. That's the big deal. What we know now, okay, just track me. What we know now is if you take baby goat meat and you boil it in milk, then the bacterial substance of the milk gets absorbed into the meat. 
and the meat does not go through your system fast enough so that the milk can get out. Now, if you just drink the milk, the bacterial substance processes as a liquid quickly enough, it's no problem at all. But if that bacterial substance is absorbed in the meat and the meat stays in your system long enough, it putrefies and will poison you and potentially kill you. How many believe God actually has things in his word to try and protect us, not just to be mean to us? Come on, those are the boundaries to preserve life. His word is true. We must embrace the truth of his word. All that to say, there are times in a nation where the political determinations and decisions intersect morally and theologically with the church. And when that happens, people like me, Listen carefully, pastors, not politicians, pastors need to stand up and talk to the church theologically under the basis of the word with the complete confidence and understanding. God says what he says in his word because he loves us and he wants to preserve us and protect us. So let me lay a little groundwork before I get to the issues. First, you and I have to take personal responsibility. You and I have to take personal responsibility. How many of you know that the... the, Great Commission to go make disciples is not an individual commission. Uh, I'm sorry, it's not an institutional commission. It's an individual commission. I want you to hear, to make sure I said it wrong once you get it. The Great Commission is an individual mandate. Don't offload that to, yep, that's what our church does. Yep, that's what our church does. Listen, you can't go to church because you are the church. We gather as the church, but we want to be the church everywhere we go as individuals. That's what we want to do. I know this might sound crazy, but we don't need all Christians involved in education, and we don't need all Christians involved in politics, and we don't need all Christians involved in all the business. We need all Christians involved with their gift where they are going in and infiltrating like a surgical instrument with the hand of God on their lives, just like Daniel did, making a difference and changing the world one life at a time. You want to change a nation? Learn to reach your neighbor. Come on. So we're going to take responsibility. Understand this, Jesus is not knocking on the door of your political party. Getting Jesus into the church is far more important than getting your candidate into the White House. Come on, I should be able to pastor a church that embraces all political persuasions. Would you agree? Like, can people have a political affiliation different than yours and you not say that they can't be Christians? Come on, we're all on a journey just trying to find our way. And we need to come into a unified perspective that says, Jesus is the answer. I don't have this all figured out. You don't have this all figured out. We're trying to find our way. We're working out the best we can. But in the midst of it all, what I'm going to do is love people forward and embrace them so that we might all understand the nature of God more effectively as we see the vision that God has in store for our lives and for our nation. Okay, political extremism. Next point. Political extremism promotes division. When I wrap up all of my political viewpoints and theological conclusions, I polarize the body, and we need to be very guarded against that because political extremism promotes division, and it violates the nature of God's love for mankind. Listen, you know you have effectively created God in your own image when it turns out he hates all the same people you do. Think about it. 
How many of you think this is a message the church in the United States of America has got to hear? We Christians sure get mad when people sin in ways other than us. There are a lot of ways to break this down and think about it. Abraham Lincoln warned against self-righteousness, and he cautioned in the Civil War, he cautioned against demonizing the South and glorifying the victorious North as if to say it's heavens on one side, heaven on one side and hell on the other, and the advocates of hell are the other side. Don't believe the way we do it. He's cautioning against that because the ultimate goal is coming together and hopefully discovering the purposes of God. Unity isn't always agreement. And again, here's the statement I made earlier. It's a blank. We can have distinction without having division. We can. We do. We're a church that has unique distinction. And I think that is a really healthy thing for all of us to appreciate and value as Christians. I mean, bottom line, would you agree with me? Christians simply aren't good at having conversations with people who don't agree and believe the same way they do. How are we supposed to impact the world if we're only willing to be in circles of people that agree the same way we do because we've never been taught how to interact or relate or have a relationship with them? How many of you like having salt on your table? Can I just say you like salt? You may like salt. My wife puts watermelon, salt on watermelon. Does anybody do that? Oh, man, that just seems crazy to me. Like, y'all need therapy or something to put salt on watermelon. I don't even understand that. But, but she does too, so maybe I'm the one that needs therapy. So, like salt, it's sitting on the table. It's nice and neat in this white, you know, containing all this white salt in the, in the shaker. You know what? That salt will never do its job until it's turned upside down and shaken out in the, wherever you're wanting it to influence. We are the salt of the earth. We need to be engaged, involved in our level of life, in our level of business, in our level of government, in our level of education, in our level of ministry expression in a way that's bringing impact into the lives of people around us within our reach, WWDD, what would Daniel do? When it comes to politics, we rarely have all the facts. Could you agree with that? How many of you know, like the president, I've, I've watched, and when presidents get finished with the presidential race, like, they don't look like they did when they went in. Have you noticed that? Anybody seen Obama lately? He's like a gray-haired old man, and he's pretty young for president. And like, I mean, eight, hour, eight years in the White House has got to do some damage, because I've seen this consistently now. I mean, I'm like almost 30, and I've seen a few presidents going on. And so, I mean, you can't have everything that they're, it's easy to be mad at them. I have watched as the most stellar athletes, the elite athletic build basketball players in the world get on this small court being coached by professional coaches who understand the game, being refed by professional refs who know about the game, and they're down there blowing the whistle, screaming, yelling, playing, and the overweight, unathletic people in the stands know every rule that ought to be called in every foul. That's church. That's politics. We enjoy the comfort of our opinion without the discomfort of thinking about why we have the opinion that we have. So when it comes to politics, we rarely have all the facts, but we argue convincingly as if we have all the answers. Even if we're short on information, we are never short on opinions. Can I get a witness? 
How many ever threw something at the TV when the news was reporting something? You're just like, these stupid people. I mean, I think I speak for all of us when I say I hate that our nation is so divided. And I wish everybody could believe what I've chosen to believe. I speak for all of us when I say that, right? We oversimplify. This is the big thing, and, and I, I want to address a few of the issues, but this is the big thing. We oversimplify deeply complicated problems, and they're deeply complicated. I'll give you an illustration. First, clearly understand, you, you get the heart and soul behind where we're going today. That's important. Before I tell you what I believe, I need to build a relationship with you. I mean, that's just like 101 for all of us in influencing our nation. We believe as a church family, not only does abortion stop a beating heart, it takes a human life. And we believe it's a great injustice for an unborn child who has no ability to fight for themselves to lose their life. And so we, we believe this is something worth arguing for and fighting for. Okay, we, we believe that. We also believe because there are people in our church who've walked through that procedure some multiple times. And we believe that those people need absolute mercy, grace, and love to be able to move forward. Come on, we're all on a journey just trying to find our way. Who are you to cast stones of judgment against somebody else for decisions they've made? What we're trying to do is pick up the pieces and move forward in a way that brings glory and honor to God and expands the work of God in the earth. So clearly understand where our position is as a church, but also understand oversimplifying something deeply complicated both theologically, morally, and politically, doesn't foster a good outcome. For instance, maybe you've been watching and, and the bill was presented and, and now, you know, the state of Oklahoma passed this bill that would become law that it's illegal for doctors to perform abortions in the state of Oklahoma. And, and the conservatives erupted with you know, appreciation and, and value. This is our position that we want to protect the unborn and, and, and great celebration. And then the governor vetoed. And now I'm hearing all this hate about the governor because of her veto. And I, I mean, I, I don't know what's going on politically with all of it, but you do understand, like, she was voted in because she was a conservative. So the conservatives have turned on the conservative, and I'm not really hearing the facts of what that's all about. But what I do understand in my limited knowledge of politics, and I got uh, quite a uh, lecture after first service for even addressing this issue and not telling the whole story. And let me just say, I'm not a politician. I'm not up here to try and give you the whole story because none of us know the whole story. But what I do understand is that the state can develop a law that says something is legal but if the federal government has already positioned in law that says something is illegal, then it's more of a statement being made than it is something that could be carried out. And perhaps that had something to do with the veto. I don't know. But we're like filled with discord and disunity and anger and we're politically charged. And I'll guarantee you, no question about it, I could get you revved up this morning. Let's charge Capitol Hill. Let's pull out the sword. Let's cut off somebody's ear. And Jesus would say, put your sword away. Am I trying to lead some type of a big militia? I'm not telling you I have all the answers, but I will tell you this. I believe an angry religious reaction is a sledgehammer. And what God wants to do in this nation is much more strategic, much like an instrument, a surgical instrument. 
where we as the body of Christ are taking our responsibility individually in every walk of life and literally turning our city upside down, our state upside down, our nation upside down, making disciples all around the globe or turning their nation upside down. Come on, let's believe for every nation in the world to turn to Jesus Christ and let God begin to draw out the kingdom that's planted in our hearts. Okay, another hot-button topic, and you just need to be aware if you're not. President Obama sent a letter from the White House to every public school in the United States of America. And, and you just need to be aware of this letter. And let me just say first a position on the matter, just right up front. We believe that a person's sexuality is sacred and is a sacred gift from God and a decision God has made. That, that's what we believe. We believe that God actually is like the author and originator of sexual relationship. I mean, that's pretty cool, huh? And so we believe that. that like that's, Song of Solomon's in there. But he gives framework. Like how many of you enjoy a wonderful fireplace? Can I just see like on a cool night, you like the light, you know, fireplace. How many like the fireplace as long as the logs stay in the fireplace? But like if you build the fireplace in the living room floor, how many of you would not like the fireplace, okay? So you understand fire is wonderful in the proper boundaries and context. And the Bible gives us the proper boundaries and context of one man, one woman for life in marriage. That's the proper context. Anything other than that deals with fire in areas you don't want fire in those areas. Any type of sex outside of the confines of man and woman in marriage is what the Bible calls sexual sin. This involves fornication. This involves homosexuality. This involves adultery. This involves polygamy. If you've got multiple wives, then hey, we need to have a chat. Okay? Because like, you got bigger problems than you realize. You got multiple mother-in-laws. This is a huge issue. <laughs> anyway, so let me, just, let me just point out, let me just point something out for you that I think will be helpful. Because like you read in the book of Leviticus, and I've heard people do this, they're like, this is a sexual sin. Right here I see sexual sin, but it also says don't eat ham sandwiches. <laughs> if you're going to eat ham sandwiches, then you're going to indulge in sexual sin, and it's okay. Now let me help you understand. I understand that's confusing. It's perplexing. But let me just give it to you real straight, Okay. There are three kinds of laws we find in the Bible. There are ceremonial laws, there are civil laws, and there are moral laws. And you need to understand the distinction. Ceremonial laws are things that happen in regard to the law given by Scripture for the Levites, the priests, and so forth. Don't cut your hair. Don't eat ham sandwiches. Don't eat bacon. Oh, can you imagine not being able to eat banquet? I, I'm grieved thinking of the thought. Um, <laughs> I hate bacon. Said nobody on the planet ever. Okay, and so you can't do these are these are ceremon these are ceremonial laws, and then you've got civil laws that were given for the government and the civic order for those cities and municipal courts and so forth in those days. So you get me? Ceremonial laws have changed. Civil laws have changed. Moral laws don't change. Moral laws are the laws you see in Scripture that are both in the Old Testament and then reiterated again in the New Testament. To bypass what I'm saying, 
You have to say, well, I know that prophecy happened 170,880 days. Yeah, that's really interesting. But it's DT Groove Cruiser on this one, God. I'm sure I'm right on this one. Come on. God's smarter than we are. I think we need to pay attention. So position, okay? You understand that position. Now, this letter that's gone to all the public schools in the United States of America, this, this letter literally says from our president that if a boy identifies with his feminine side more than his masculine side, then he is to be given the opportunity to use the bathroom with our daughters and to be in the showers, the locker rooms, with our girls. It's a transgender protection to protect the transgender rights. I, I don't know if you're where I am on that, but like I got two daughters and I personally have a little problem with that. We little problem. Like it's kind of not, not so we, it's like great, great, great big problem. I mean, I'm looking at all that and I'm trying, what? I mean, hey, I'll tell you what, man, enrollment is going to be booming next year. We're having calls like crazy in our private Christian school. Isn't that nuts? That's like wild. Well, I mean, you know, I want to do that too. Like, good, we're going to increase enrollment. No, I mean, that, that's not the way we want to do this. Let's change the world. Let's reach into people's lives on an individual basis and help them understand the love and the life of Christ. And there's some things that we can do and things that we need to do. We need to pray and obey. It's where we start. I know when I say pray, people are like, oh, yeah, pray. Oh, prayer. No, no, no. If my people who are called by my name will humble, listen, arrogant conservatism is not God's plan for this nation. should be a great rousing support for that way more than it was, but I'll give you a break. God's not into arrogance. God is not into arrogance. God opposes the arrogant. God opposes the proud. I'm not talking candidates. I'm talking perspectives, and I want to obey Scripture. If we'll humble our first humility, humble ourselves and pray and turn from our wicked ways, God will hear from heaven, and he'll heal the land. Now, I want to, I'm going to give you a couple other things you can do, but I, I want to challenge you on something. This is a really kind of a bizarre paradigm to consider. Because I don't know about you, but I've been told for a long time now, it's all these bad people in the nation causing all these problems in our world. If we could get rid of all the bad people. Well, we just looked at a verse of Scripture that doesn't blame the bad people, but it says the church has to take responsibility, okay? First and foremost. Number two, when I go back and I think about Jonah, are you with me? Jonah? Like, Jonah was disobedient. And because Jonah was disobedient, a storm descended. You remember this story? And when Job got into alignment with his assignment, decided to obey God, pagan city, capital city of paganism, Nineveh turned in a day. But, but let's back up. The storm descended, why? Because the man of God wasn't in obedience. Maybe, just maybe, storms that have come to our nation deal more with disobedient believers than a pagan city that'll turn in a day if we'll just wake up and turn the light on. Come on. I'm not telling you I have all the answers. 
I pity the leaders that stand up as if they do. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. God, we need you. God, we need your help. Jesus, we want to understand the call of God on our lives. Pray, obey, listen, vote. Vote. It's the nature of the nation in which we live. Vote and vote your moral uh, compass. Get involved. Get involved. Write letters. Do it. Like, do it. Go to school board meetings. Speak up. All these things. But listen, be self-controlled and alert, not alarmed. The Bible never says it's okay to be alarmed. It tells us to be alert. WWDD. This is what Daniel did. This is what I think we should do. Keep our faith healthy and strong. Learn the language. Understand the culture. Serve the people that are within our reach. Would you mind just saying that with me, everybody? Serve the people that are within our reach. Carry such a spirit of excellence that even secular officials will invite our influence to oversee and be involved in potentially altering the course of entire nation. Last two blanks, if you'll fill these in. The truth without love is brutal. Truth without love is brutal. But the love without truth is reckless. I think we need to be able to process all this. And and let me just make sure again that we all understand. Please don't misunderstand anything I'm saying today. Political correctness You hear me? Political correctness at the expense of truth is wrong. World peace, like just everybody get along, let everybody believe whatever they want to believe, and we'll all get to heaven one day, wrong. In Daniel's day, that that was the common belief that he had to dispel. In your day, that's the common belief that we have to war against. But how you do it is what I'm here to pastor you through. Let your love, would you say love? Let your love be louder than your agenda. People may may think you're passing judgment when you stand up for what you believe is right. You, You understand that. People might think you're passing judgment when you stand up for what you believe is right. Your job is to love them, not to change them. Keep standing. Keep loving. That's my charge to you as your pastor. I love you. I care about you. And I want to see you become everything God's called you to become. Some of the things I've said today are very sensitive issues. They just need to be addressed. We've got to come together and understand first and foremost. And by the way, guys, we are not, we are not American Christians. That's not who we are. We are Christian Americans. Our citizenship in heaven is first and foremost before our citizenship in any nation of the world. And our absolute obligation and devotion is that his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven.